0: Welcome to Darshan Talks powered by the Kulkarni Law Firm. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Darshan Talks. I'm here with Isaac Rodriguez Chavez. I'm going to let him introduce himself to you, but before we start this conversation, I'm really excited about because we're going to talk about decentralized clinical trials. And what does it mean? Why do they exist? Why is everyone talking about it right now? And is it everything we think it'll be? And is it as disruptive as people think it will be. But before we start, Isaac, tell us more about yourself.
1: Thank you and welcome everyone who is listening to this podcast. Uh, It's a true pleasure to be here with all of you. I am delighted to have this opportunity to connect with the audience and discuss the topic of decentralized clinical trials and digital health technologies. I am Isaac Rodriguez-Chavez, doctor in science, uh, specialty in biology, uh, immunology, viral immunology, infectious diseases, I, and I have covered essentially the whole spectrum of basic, translational, preclinical, and clinical research in over thirty years of work experience. Uh, I am a clinical scientist by training, and I am passionate about working in clinical trials and uh, the space of regulations. I am a former FDA official, working on clinical research methodologies, uh, medical policy development, regulatory compliance. And I'm happy to be here with all of you.
0: So I just want to clarify for everyone, Isaac previously worked for the FDA. He does not represent the FDA right now. This is not legal advice. This is not clinical advice. um, But this is a conversation to help educate people about what decentralized clinical trials are, what the guidance hopefully was intended to mean, we don't know where it is right now. Well, i mean, we're not opining on where it is right now. This is more of an educational conversation. But let's start from the beginning, Isaac. What, and, and, and this sounds like the basic conversation, what are decentralized clinical trials?
1: Certainly. So the everybody may, and by now knows that the FDA issued the guidance, draft guidance on decentralized clinical trials. I have the privilege of being part of that effort when I was at the agency, as well as uh, guidance on digital health technologies, real-world evidence, clinical outcome assessments, and so on and so forth. So decentralized clinical trials, according to the guidance, are those types of trials that are conducted remotely from the site that is in charge of, uh, that is overseen by by an investigator. So (laughs) in other words, when the trial-related activities are happening remotely from the site and from the investigator that is overseeing the site and the personnel at the site. These activities can happen, some of them can happen remotely, and that is considered a hybrid decentralized clinical trials, and others can happen at the site where the patient can be seen directly face-to-face with the investigator. And those that can happen in all the time, face-to-face, at the site in which the investigator sees in person the uh, the the patient, those are traditional trials. And sorry, I I got distracted and confused. Okay. So, decentralized clinical trials are is a, is a spectrum that can be from fully uh, from hybrid decentralized clinical trials to hybrid decentralized clinical trials. The hybrid decentralized clinical trials are those in which some activities are happening remotely, other activities are happening at the site face to face face-to-face with the investigator uh, and at the site. The fully decentralized clinical trials, on the other hand, is in which all activities are happening remotely. The patient is in the place where the patient lives, the community where the patient lives. Bottom line, these are patient-centric approaches that are deployed in the in the ecosystem where the patients or the participants live. And they are done leveraging with <clears throat> the standard healthcare system so that there is utilization of local healthcare providers, local a clinical diagnostic labs, central imaging, imaging services, and so on
0: and so forth. What, what was the logic to creating this guidance? And what I mean by that is there is a thought out there saying, oh, it was started because of COVID. But my experience with the FDA sa- suggests that the FDA doesn't just react to one event. Was this something that was planned for a while and this just ha- COVID just happened to happen? Or was it something that COVID uh, caused more of or impetus was created? That is a very good
1: question, Darshan. Uh, The fact is that there are a series of cumulative knowledge and events, factors that impacted traditional clinical trials and that led us to believe that there has to be better ways of testing the safety and efficacy or the safety and the safety and efficacy of novel drugs and biologics and the safety and the effectiveness of uh, novel medical devices. So traditional trials brought up to bear a series of deficiencies for the last 50 or 70 years connected to the high cost of developing or approving a new medical product, two to two billion dollars. The lack of diversity in these trials have been always a historical problem. In average, there has been about 3% of minority participation in these trials. There has been a high dropout rates that can go up to 40% in traditional investigations. The enrollment timeline uh, have failed in 85% of the cases, and there has been delays in enrollment due to the geographic boundaries connected to the clinical research sites, and that can go as high as, as up to 80%. Site enrollment is another problem, as I mentioned, and uh, they can sometimes enroll one or no patients or less than 50% enrollment. This is seen frequently over and over. There is a disconnect between the medical care in the standard healthcare system and the clinical research, both acting in silos historically. And essentially, when we go to our primary care Physician, we have never been informed of any trials that are happening in the disease or area that we are consulting with with our primary care physician. So there is a separation of the two, and uh, that is not for the benefit of of the patients. Trial amendments are happening, and uh, are happening in traditional trials at a high frequency. About fifty seven percent of them, and the majority of these amendments, about. I mean, the the majority or or about 50% of them can be avoided, can be avoided. There is a high uh, investigator attrition rate of about 45%. There are geographic distance, uh, there are barriers to to the distance between the sites and the patients that have to be seen at the site, so that represents a major limitation. There are socioeconomic barriers and cultural barriers connected to traditional trials and the participation of minorities. So all of that body of deficiencies impacting the conduct of traditional clinical trials has led us to believe that from the participant, clinical trial participant or patient, there has to be better ways to do in this. And that better way is implement, take the traditional, to take the trials and the activities of the trials instead of the patient to the site, take the site and the activities to where the patient lives, and that decreases the burden of the participants, and that puts in place participant-centric approaches, and that enhances, empowers the participation because supposedly it's less disruptive in the daily lives of the participants. So the idea is essentially break the geographic barriers, enhance the diversity pool participating in these clinical trials, implement patient-centric approaches for all the trial related activities and streamline processes and procedures so that in the end, we have a more efficient trial that is conducted. Now, that is what happened with traditional trials and that led to the progressive implementation of decentralized clinical trials. And they are not new. They have been happening since the early 2000s and they were just a few companies utilizing these approaches and a couple of papers were published around 2013 or 2014. So in, for example, since 2014 and until 2019, the implementation and utilization of decentralized clinical trials was happening at about 7% compound annual growth rate. Then COVID-19, the major wave of COVID-19, or waves of COVID-19 happened and <laughs> from, 2019, the second half to 2022, there was a utilization. All the clinical trials, traditional trials had to be amended and remote activities were put in place. And anywhere between 77% up to 80 or 90% of these trials uh, were amended, were modified to include decentralized clinical trial approaches. Now in 2023, after going through the major waves of COVID-19, we are still in this transformation that is irreversible. We're still in the adoption phase that is still happening. And there is a global adoption by pharmaceutical companies, by biotech companies, by clinical research organizations, by clinical research sites uh, that is indicating, according to the surveys, about 14% compound annual growth rate. And that is poised to grow at an exponential rate from now until 2030. So it is a way of hopefully doing things better than we have done in the past with traditional clinical investigations. DCTs are not here to replace the traditional clinical trials. It's, in my opinion, an expansion of the clinical research approaches and toolkit that we have in place and doing things in a way that we will lower again the burden of the participants and encourage, enhance, empower the participants, the, the patients to be part of the trials.
0: There are two things that jump out at me. The first one is um, you told me early on that you started working, you actually participated in the development of the real world evidence guidance as well. Is that, did I misunderstand you?
1: No, I Okay,
0: so yeah, well. to me, it's interesting They talk about real-world evidence, um, the the guidance itself, and there was what constitutes real-world evidence. However, we're also now talking about gathering evidence in the real world. So to me, I feel like the FDA is moving from the pristineness of randomized controlled clinical trials. Again, not taking away saying that you don't want that, but let's see what reality looks like. What are patients really doing? What kind of real evidence are we gathering? Is that fair to say that they're moving away from the the academic version of clinical research to more of the real version of um, data gathering, data use, data analysis, et cetera?
1: That is an interesting way of looking at it. I wouldn't necessarily look at it that way. Uh, Again, what we are doing, first of all, the 21st Century Cures Act enacted in December of 2016 and uh, put in place in, in January of 2017, uh, that was a mandate and a law that clearly opened the doors to implement real-world evidence uh, approaches, and the FDA took that to heart, and it's a mandate, so they developed a program on real-world evidence that is the one that we all know that we all know nowadays. So that program has been very successful, and that program has different ways of, uh, I mean, it's, it's just growing and it's being utilized and is essentially a way of looking at uh, medical products in, in real world settings. The, since then, the FDA was also thinking and working on decentralized clinical trials. Now in December of 2022, the Consolidated Appropriations Act spells out in a very, with very specific language, information regarding decentralized clinical trials, asking the agency to provide guidance on decentralized clinical trials. is also very clear in the language related to equity, diversity, and inclusion. It's also very clear in regards to the use of digital health technologies. And all of these are uh, representing, in my mind, an evolution of clinical research. It's an expansion and an evolution of clinical research. Uh, this is not to be taken as right now the agency walked away from randomized controlled trials. I don't think that that is the case. I think we are still looking, the agency still looks very clearly, that is the gold standard uh, for spatial efficacy for drugs and biologics, and is essentially an expansion of the clinical data that the agency can review for decision
0: making. That's how I Absolutely. see it. Absolutely. I, th- I think I'm, I may have um uh, been unclear i wasn't suggesting that they were not looking at rcts i mean let's be honest that's go- going to remain the gold standard what i was talking about exactly the language you use which is the evolution to say we want that information still i mean it's it's required under cfr anyways you need two randomized double blinded placebo controlled clinical clinical trials but the augmentation of that data can come from these additional sources and i think that that's wonderful because it speaks to the FDA thinking about real world conditions which i think is very very valuable i also thought it was very interesting you mentioned the impact on sites was there any thought given to what kinds of stakeholders should really be really be involved in this type of guidance development talk to me a little bit about how the F, how the agency brings a guidance like this together because it it seems so mystical from the outside it seems like somewhere out of nowhere a guidance dropped and now we have to grapple with it on the other hand i know that you guys are working on this for months if not years before it comes out so what is that process like and why does uh h- how do you decide what rules will apply because it changes how we, we as the industry you as the industry now um will grapple with those rules. Talk to me about the process of developing a guidance and what stakeholders you consider, say in in a guidance like this, what kind of stakeholders you consider? Is it primarily from the perspective of the participants or is it primarily from the perspective of cost? Is it primarily from the perspective of how should sponsors deal with it? Which stakeholders do you consider? And who's in, and I don't mean this literally, but who's in the room Who's making the decision? How is this guidance developed internally, overall? Not this specific guidance, but in general.
1: Yeah. Uh, I don't know how much public knowledge that is. I can tell you that there is not a universal formula okay. to write the guidance. And that this is a multi-stakeholder from all, uh, for example, if it's a guidance, evidently in in within the clinical centers, it will be connected to clinical research and it will require the participation of Multiple stakeholders in the clinical from the clinical centers, meaning CDRH, uh, Cedar, Cedar. And it will represent, it will have representation from multiple offices and to cover as many angles as possible. Evidently, whenever there is a guidance to be developed, it's because there is a gap. And we all understand that there is a gap, and the gap needs to be filled by the guidance. So that will be the main topic of the guidance. And then everyone brings to the table different angles and perspectives connected to that topic that can and are discussed during the development of the guidance process. These are in the end draft documents that the agency developed or develops, and those documents are then open for public comments during a specific period of time to embrace the public and the experience of the public and then after that time, the agency uh, analyzes the feedback received from the public to add the pertinent content and information to make the draft guidance into a final guidance. And the guidance are, when they are finalized, they represent the current thinking of the agency. They are not legally binding documents.